edit stuff out. I don't like Joel. There's no I'm just here for pressure. the podcast. Um, what is something you've always wanted to say to me that you haven't I've been said able to everything say? that I've wanted to say to you. No, I, I don't. And I've been severely offended. Uh, two or three times, yeah. I came into this field uh, from the private sector and then from physical therapy school where social justice was not discussed. It, it wasn't a taboo per se as much as it was very much not part of the culture. Um, social justice in general is changing to some degree in the past few years, but like I worked in the private sector from 2006 um, until uh, 2014, I worked for, you know, renewable energy consultant and then really for a a developer uh, owned by an investment bank. So, you know, and then I went to physical therapy school. I mean, things like pronouns were not yeah by any means discussed like it wasn't even within the realm of things that you would discuss um and so you know i definitely have become more aware of the i would just frankly describe it as woke culture um which i don't really like the term woke (laughs) per se just it's but that's sort of what it is so i become a lot more aware of it um me personally like I guess I'm kind of like a contrary person, so I tend to almost instinctively, like, if I feel like there's a predominant mode of thinking with a group, I tend to almost, like, reflexively resist internally. Um, Very deconstructionist of you. I don't... Which is great. What does that mean? It's like you're con- it's within queer theory you're constantly deconstructing oh yeah social norms structures systems yeah that's what I do with a lot of things I mean not everything which is funny because I've accused you of pessimism uh, you have definitely accused <laughs> me of pessimism and I lots of, I mean yeah like people would definitely say I'm pessimistic you're not alone right. in that regard Ariel would probably my wife would probably say that but um, I mean I I resonate because I like. I love to critique things, and I, like, I, I'm with you. Like, you do devil's advocate a lot. Anytime there's, like, some type of normative idea, I'm thinking of ways to push back against it. Which is interesting, because I feel like sometimes I just, like, I want to pick a bone to fight. Like, I just... Yeah, I've, I've gotten that impression before. And from, I mean, from me? Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, like, you're just... No, I, I have. And I think that that is, you know, kind of an activist mentality, and that can be very productive in certain contexts, and there needs to be people to do that. Um, yeah. But, you know, in terms of, like, how I've changed internally in terms of my relationship with social justice, I think that... Um, I don't know that my opinions have really, or my feelings have really changed significantly. I mean, I've always considered myself to be like pretty, you know, philosophically and and theoretically like progressive, but I also like acknowledge uh, my own privilege and not just my own privilege, but my own learned biases. Like for example, you know, I grew up, I say I'm from Philadelphia, but that's just to make things simpler for people to understand. Like I grew up in the suburbs, like an affluent suburb, sort of 
the equivalent of maybe your Dinah or your Minnetonka. Yeah. I went to a school, a public school that was probably 90... I, I don't know. There was a there's a book that was entitled this, but there was a a table and at the lunchroom where all the black kids sat at my schools, you know, and that and that was it. And I, there were many Jewish people. I'm Jewish, um, so I feel like those experiences that you have when you're a kid and you're younger really color your your perspective on this sort of thing. Yeah. And so, like, I come from that perspective and. I have my biases, you know, when I grew up, um, like the culture in the Philadelphia area, uh, there's a lot, a little less so now, but there's a lot of racial tension. My parents were boomers who left the, uh, you know, to go to the suburbs in like the, the eighties or seventies or eighties. And so it's like, you know, you drive through a bad neighborhood, which is frequently a, a black neighborhood. And my, you know, my mom is the kind of person that's like, roll the windows up, lock your doors, you know? So like, I grew up with that, and I'm cognizant that I still have these these biases. And, you know, I, I, I think, so really, past the way I've tried to change the most is just, like, past couple of years, my awareness of the culture. Well, the program we were in, I think, was so, like, life-changing for a lot of us. And I was talking with Jane, which is a, is a site that I feel like I've promoted the program so much on this podcast where I feel like this would just be like the St. Thomas Leadership and Student Affairs program. Well, if you continue podcast doing it over the like, years, it'll, it'll like, evolve, but yeah. And I, and, but I think it keeps coming up for good reason because I think I was talking to Jane and she was she said this program tends to bring people in the cohort together and it's just like a level of discussion and critique and conversation. I know like I feel like a, a different person and maybe that has more to do with the fact that I'm 24 years old and a young person too your persona gets more ingrained because you just yeah. accumulate more experiences and yeah um which leads me to another question you alluded to your Jewish identity but what identities yeah. do you hold and how do those identities shape how you experience the world Really, my Jewishness is probably my most significant identity, uh, and perhaps secondly, my just my like geographic identity. Being from the East Coast is an important identity for me. I've had a long history in my relationship with my Jewishness. When I was in high school, hmm. I I would like tease myself about being Jewish. I would make, you know, I don't remember exactly, but fairly derogatory comments towards myself um and i mean was that a defense mechanism you think yeah more or less and i mean that's a that's not there's a term you know self-hating jew is like a actual term i mean you google it you'll find stuff but i don't think i've ever heard of that yeah i mean it it is a kind of a thing but yeah it was a way of me coping with the fact that i felt like an outsider and i was i had a lot of social anxiety i felt awkward so, you know, I, I didn't, and I just didn't have a good relationship with Judaism because I associated it heavily with my parents and mm-hmm. I didn't, I don't, I didn't, and I don't have a good relationship with my parents. And I felt just like, I didn't like being an outsider. Like, I just didn't like being different, you know, I really in my mid to late twenties, actually, uh, a lot of it was through getting to know Ariel, my wife, who 
showed me that you can like hold Judaism in a different way than where I had been holding it before. You can, it's a flat, it's a fairly, well, for some people, not for everyone, but it, yeah. it has the potential to be a pretty flexible religion. And, and we that... talked about like my upbringing, which was much more like it was evangelical Christian, like much more like set, much more doctrine oriented. I was going to use the word doctrine. Less, less flexible. And I'll say as a side note, I really appreciate mentioning religion because I feel like I don't often feel like that comes up very much in social justice no, conversations it, or discussions, but it, it significantly influences people. It, it does. Uh, I think it does come up a lot in the United States because we live in a heavily Christian society, whereas things like race come up a lot in the United States because of the obvious, I mean, her, horrendous his, and unique history that the United States has with, has with slavery. Well, then um, the separation of church and state... I yeah. wonder if that's sort of a, a fear that people have where they just sort of want to keep that. You know, religion's more of a private Religion thing. does have a tendency towards being private. Some people don't like talking about their religious I mean, it's, it's very It's very personal. I mean, just as it can, social identities can be. Yeah, yeah. In my mid-20s, I decided, really it was at my parents' encouragement, to go to the Birthright Israel program. And so it's a free 10-day trip to Israel. And I didn't want to for a long time because, like, largely I disagreed with um, geopolitics of Israel. I still do. Um, and I think I was just being kind of, like, a contrarian. And But I went, and that's where I met my wife. We yeah. were together at the time. That was actually a very transformative experience for me, like... Being, I mean, I'm even getting shivers thinking about now, but huh, being wow. in a place where, and I'm guessing you can relate on some level, but being in a place where people look like you, yeah. when you have been living in a place where people don't really look like you is really meaningful. Like it makes you realize like, wow, you know, like yeah. I have a home. What I'm thinking about is the contrast that you mentioned before of how you would like make fun of yourself or in some ways bully yourself in order for whatever reason i i would think maybe that's connected to like coping in a dominant yeah, society maybe even trying yeah. to fit in in some way but what that was reminding me of was i remember in college and i don't think i knew this at the time but my ethnicity as being indian i don't think that was very salient just because i Attended international schools, mm -hmm. didn't really think very much about my Indianness per se, but you still feel like you stand out. So I think similar to you, I wasn't really sure what that needed to mean for me or what it went, what it meant for me. I would dress up in traditional Indian clothing, and I would walk around campus and speak in in a very strong Indian accent, because the white people around me loved it. I feel like I was mocking me. If people are going to laugh at me because I maybe sound Indian sometimes, which I, I, I think I had a maybe more of an Indian accent when I first moved to the United States. Yeah. But if people were going to be nervous around me, a part of it was, well, I'll make fun of me first. Yeah. So there, there's maybe something that's like you're helpful helpful in that. But it just yeah. reminds me of what you're saying where I was trying to function and I think a lot of people sort of accepted me because in some ways I was perpetuating inferiority. Their yeah. Well, and their stereotypes and 
Yeah. Any perception of otherness or difference. Right. Yeah, I mean, it is hard when you're younger trying to come to grips with one's identities in a world where you're not part of the majority. Whatever, however that might manifest, and it can, it can be religion, it can be skin color, it can be ethnic background, right. and et cetera, et cetera. But no, I mean, being in Israel was really transformative for me. Um, it was a weird time in my life, too. I had just broken up with a girlfriend in a really, really poisonous, unhealthy relationship. And so I was sort of, like, lost and kind of, like, in, like, a blank state place where I was just, like, and it's a whole other story. But I was at right. a unique point in my life. And, yeah, just being in a place where I was, like, wow, people look like me. I felt, I felt a connection. You know, I felt yeah. a connection. And... You know, and I came back to the the States, and I mean, I didn't do much with my Judaism, but marrying a Jewish woman, uh, the first Jewish woman that I had ever even dated, and that wasn't intentional, it's just, I never, yeah, it's just what happened. Um, and just her relationship with Judaism, which is a lot more open. Reform, I was kind of trying to allude to it before, but Reform Judaism, which is like the mainstream form of, like most Jewish people in the United States, they probably were raised in a Reform background, but Reform, actually their history was one of, um, well, it was a combination of a few things. Like it was partially like, they had an interest in social justice, but they also had an interest in facilitating assimilation into American society. And so they modeled a lot of their religious practices after the Protestant church. So things like a choir is not historically associated with Judaism, but it is associated with, it is associated with Protestantism. I don't, I don't know. I was, I was not sure about Catholicism. So it's, there's this kind of Protestant vibe where you like, you know, the rabbi will say something and you'll repeat yeah. it back. And I could go on, yeah. but I didn't like that. I didn't feel comfortable with it. I still don't. It feels very fake. And yeah. So, you know, and then, but I mean, whitewashed is super whitewashed. The, and that was actually, that it, it was in, intentional. Like it was an effort towards assimilation when yeah. Jews don't, they didn't feel they wanted to be, be more white. Yeah. To feel safe. Which is interesting because I, I think of like individual assimilation a lot, but this is fascinating because you're talking about like collective. a collective or like large structure, like institutional assimilation into ha- a larger. Yeah, yeah, no, it system. happens in a, a lot of ways. I I think. Yeah. But um, would you say that Ariel, when you met and started dating and got married, did she seem more in touch with her Jewish identity? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and that is, I think she's just more comfortable in her own skin from the get go, and also, yeah. she's the kind of person that she's very agreeable so like she was brought up in a like a very progressive jewish household um and her mom is very involved in the jewish community in duluth and it's always been a part of ariel's identity i mean i I think for me now like being jewish is something i'm definitely proud of yeah and i'm proud because it's it's something that's unique i 
I think it's it's interesting historically. Um, but I think I have like an enormous amount of respect for just all my ancestors that were able to, you know, maintain their identity in the force of in the wake of a society that frequently was not I mean I just think of the persecution that my ancestors experienced and it's frustrating for me because whenever I think about this sort of thing I also like simultaneously think about Jewish privilege you know and so I have this feeling of guilt it's like when I'm like talking about persecution of Jewish people or just my Jewish identity I have a feeling of guilt because not just because um of that the perception of privilege but also just it's like we internal it's like i've internalized a degree of anti-semitism you mm. know i think people internalize you know oh yeah stereotypes and negative bad feelings um, it's the same idea i think with race like you internalize feelings of anti-brownness anti-blackness mm-hmm. in high school i used to dye my black hair and in college i would do the same and i think I didn't really know what I was doing, but in hindsight, I think I was genuinely, because of white supremacist and Eurocentric norms, fearful to actually just have my black hair on display. And I was coping with that. And so I think what you're pointing at is really helpful, I think, especially with people who hold oppressed identities learning to take care of ourselves and actually addressing some of the anti whatever oppressed identities we hold on our own because I think that's in us and I think Mm -hmm. it can be very unresolved and I think it it is traumatic and I guess I uh, therapy has been helpful to me I mean in some ways this podcast might even is therapeutic Mm -hmm. to me I I mean I'm just to put, put it back on you like have you found ways to resolve some of the trauma or to address it or what helps you in having like an acceptance of that identity i think going to synagogue has been helpful yes sometimes i'm still uncomfortable with it but um just being involved in the community i took a hebrew class one and a half hebrew classes um and yeah, I mean, I think just being involved in the community is is helpful. Um, but yeah, sometimes I still don't feel comfortable in my own skin. I feel like yeah. imposter when I go to synagogue. Um, yeah, and that's like, will we ever feel one hundred percent comfortable? Like, I don't think so. I you know, know, like, I think it's a process. Um, and shifting gears gears a little bit, I, I, I enjoy talking about higher ed and students sure. and thinking about this maybe being even like a student-centered or higher ed podcast. I don't really know what this is right now. Um, But like in your work, how do you see your identity showing up at work? But also um, kind of a a larger question with how do you support students with the social justice-centered knowledge that you have? I well, think that's like four questions in one. Yeah, it yeah it is. Um, I need to work out that. I need to just ask simple like questions that are easier to respond. Oh, to. it's okay. I uh, like being broad sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But whatever that brings up. Yeah. You, no, whatever. totally. Um, I mean, I think at my job, 
both being Jewish and from the East Coast kind of manifests just in the way I communicate. But that's partially just, most of it is really just like, again, it's a way of me, it's a lot of this is my way of coping with my sadness of, be, of being an outsider or, or rather feeling like an outsider. Hmm. So, um, yeah. So that's part of the reason I think why I announce it and why I make it like part of my identity is just, I'm trying to just like, really it's similar to like, you know, walking around campus with an, with Indian accent and wearing traditional clothing. Um, but you know, I, I think, uh, I bring a communication style that's more direct and, um, I would just say generally more direct to my job, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of my Jewish identity. I think it, that's, I don't really talk. Well, I do. I mean, I, I say that I'm Jewish. I don't talk about it a lot. I think it comes across more just like culturally yeah. in almost a Seinfeldian way where it's yes. just kind of part of my essence. Uh, but this isn't a true episode without a Seinfeld reference. Yeah, no, I know you love your Seinfeld. Um, Especially because we're talking about about all things Jewish and the epitome of Larry David. Oh, Larry and David, yeah. It's Jerry Seinfeld. It's, I know, the Jewish humor. It makes me, this is probably trivial and stupid to say, but it almost makes me want to be a little more Jewish. Being Jewish is good. I mean, you have to deal. It's, it's... I like being Jewish, but it's, um, it's... I say a little more Jewish, like I, I have, I'm already somewhat Jewish. <laughs> well... I've been to synagogue with you You once. have, yeah, that was cool. I was really, I enjoyed yeah. that. Yeah, you talked about that. I enjoyed that, the that snacks old, after, Older too. dude. Yeah. Um, one question that I like to ask, um, sort to wrap up is what a shitty, weird, obnoxious, I'm not getting into the question. I, I sometimes do that where I'm like, like, you're like talking about how you feel. (laughs) I'm like, here's the why behind the question. Okay. I'll start over. A question that I like to ask as we wrap up is what makes you feel hopeful as we move forward to a more liberated and socially just society. And where that's coming from is we're in a shitty pandemic that's yeah. been... 2020. Just changed our life. 2020. To, to hit delete. The murder of George Floyd. Yeah. Injustice. Police brutality. That isn't new, but I think we're more aware of it now. With all of that being said, I don't feel very hopeful, and I think not being hopeful is completely fine. I don't want to sugarcoat where we're at. But as you think about moving forward, Mm -hmm. what comes to mind for you with how we might progress onward as a society? If you want to get into politics, you can. But yeah, what what does that bring up for you? Uh, Yeah, uh, I feel um, in the short term... I don't feel particularly hopeful, but in, I look at it from a generational perspective, like I, and I do feel hopeful, quite hopeful thinking of my daughter and of other people's children who, 
you know, will, will, like, my daughter is going to go to Minneapolis public schools. Her school will have maybe 10 times as many black kids as my school has. You've decided that for her to go? To Minneapolis public schools? Okay, I just didn't know that that was, that yeah. you had decided that. Yeah. Oh, I, I've known since, for my whole life that I would send my kid to a public school. I am an ardent believer. Nice. And that's how, and I told you this on the phone, actually, but yeah. like, that's where I think... That's how I think change happens. I mean, you yes. can be an activist and you can do that really, you know, heavy lifting, but people don't usually change that radically. Like, yeah. I mean, in terms of their openness to different races and cultures, a yeah. lot of that is learned from, you know, when you're a kid and the experiences that you have when you're younger. So I think that the younger generations, like, you know, people in their 20s, teenagers, kids, all those people that are growing up in more diverse circumstances than their parents, I mean, those those are the people that are going to carry um, our, our nation forward. Um, so, you know, historically, the United States has become more integrated over time. Historically, things have gotten better. It's just a really slow, slow battle. Um, but... I'm just happy to know that, like, when my daughter goes to school, she'll go to school um, with a lot of of black kids, you know, some Hispanic kids, even Native Americans, which Native Americans were not present at all where I grew up. And that makes me feel really happy. You know, I feel like that's the best you can do. I feel like that, well, you can, it's not the best you can do, but I feel like that's a really easy choice you can make so well um, to me it's a counter narrative to gentrification white flock some of the issues in housing that we see housing connected to where you live and where you go to school and we've talked about that outside of this too but yeah i mean that's i i guess as this person who doesn't have kids it's like such a that's definitely like a foreign thing to me but i think hearing you talk about it is making me think about what that would look like. For well, me yeah, I mean, you can imagine like what you would want your child to experience as a child, as a, as a young person. Um, but by no means am I not a hypocrite because I I, I live oh. in a, a white neighborhood. You yeah, know? Um, it's pretty affluent. Uh, so, you know, like that's another piece is like. But what shit, kind of... we we all are. We I think we all are hypocrites. Yeah, um, in, in different ways. Interesting, though. And we're just all trying. I mean, I think we need to keep fighting. Um, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, though, because I listen to... I'm a big... I like a lot of data journalism, and there, there's... Um, I read some polls recently talking about, like, what white liberals, like, are willing to do when it comes to race... Right, racial integration and racial justice, and then what like black people are willing to do. And I was surprised to see that both about 40, 30, 30 to 40% of white liberals and black people said that they wanted to live in a more, um, basically less than half of people said they want to live in a more integrated area. But the same amount um, of white liberals as black people. So it's not like black, you know, 90% of black people are saying, you know, I want to live in an area with more white people. What the survey kind of alluded to was that, or uh, what the person in the podcast was saying, and it sounds reasonable, is that what black people want isn't necessarily to live in a neighborhood with like a bunch of white people. What they want is to live in a neighborhood 
where their where their black community is provided with services. It's not not a food desert. Yeah. Has good schools. Has et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Has these. No, seriously. Which so. I mean, and I'm smirking a little bit just because the call for diversity can be so white centered. Where yeah, it's it, like, what do black people want? Do they yeah. actually want to live do in a neighborhood with, with a bunch of white people? Like, yeah. I mean, how the hell do we know? You know, yeah. do we go asking them? And you know, I mean, it makes. But it's sense. so centered on you know white people now. Feel so happy to be around diversity. It's like, but are you really working to dismantle white supremacy? And I yeah. think some of the statistics you mentioned, in some ways, also point to how diversity and in- or inclusion, even within communities of color, and I speak from my experiences in Indian first-generation immigrant, I think within that, we and I have given in to a system of white supremacy. And so in some ways, I might not, I need to even lean in to being more, uh, to advocating for liberating policies and actions for people Mm -hmm. but because of white supremacy that might not be my instinct so that it might not be my instinct to want to live because i think for for i mean especially i would say for indian immigrants in the u.s i mean they are suburbanites they are wealthy often they're well off for the most part and i think within that it's like we've all given into this dream that you can call it the american dream or the white dream or whatever that is but you it's like no, none of us can really escape from white supremacy and Mm-mm. the impact that it has on people. No, we can't. And that's why you got to do your best with the next generation. And yeah. it's little, little steps, you know? Yeah. Um, it makes... TikTok videos. I think Instagram I was in the park posts. the other day and I saw some people doing a TikTok. Yeah. It made me think of you. Yeah. Well, shit. Cheers. Cheers. This is great. Yay, podcast. <laughs> Look at that. Thank you.